Starting a viral campaign is like trying to start a wave at a football game. To me, viral means it's interesting, but customers are looking for insightful. What we forget is people don't buy brands, they buy products. Those products have a brand, and the brand's important in the sales cycle, but they're buying the product. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast once more with Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing much better than I was last time, although I thought we did a nice, uh, interesting discussion. You sounded really good, but tell us what's happening with your viral uh, marketing. Well, you know, I I, uh, I had a sore throat and I tested positive on a home test for COVID. And as they say, that's all they need. I had COVID. So I spent about two weeks getting past it. It was a mild case. So good, it's good. not like I was devastated. And I'm finally out of the uh, CDC mandated quarantine and uh, back on things. But, you know, that makes me think we ought to start, since I'm just recovering from COVID, we ought to start with viral things. So should we talk viral to begin with? We must. Okay. I was on a discussion today and a note got passed along about BuzzFeed. And I think you probably remember the dress campaign. It was the mysterious dress that nobody could agree what the color was. The gold Um, and purple. Yeah, I thought it was gold myself, but you know, (laughs) Um, BuzzFeed got 37 million views at the level they were getting 14,000 hits a minute on it. And they decided that it actually didn't make them any money. And if you know, BuzzFeed's struggling a bit. That generated a discussion because I popped in and said, yeah, well, how many of you remember the Will It Blend campaign? Right. And uh, got a little bit of that. And I think it's an interesting question, which is, all right, let's suppose you go after a viral campaign or something happens that you're ever able to leverage that passes virally. So what? Right. How do you succeed with that? Because clearly BuzzFeed's having troubles with it. And they got, you know, however many hits on that thing. And uh, the interesting thing with the Will It Blend campaign was that it did really well for about a year to a year and a half and then fell off the face of the earth and the company's search results suffer right along with it Mm. so that's the kind of the question yeah yeah so to me viral means it's interesting but customers are looking for insightful so if interesting is the way you reel in people for insightful then that works and you have a good payoff and i think you know, clickbait works the same way. If you compel me to click on it, and you probably won't these days, but let's say I fall for it. If the content is good and I learn something, or if it is insightful, then that's fine. But if it is interesting for the sake of interesting, I'll be entertained, but I may or may not even remember who did it. And I'm not surprised that it didn't make money for BuzzFeed because they were just reporting it. It wasn't even about them. Yeah, and I think a lot of this is, it goes into, I mean, the constant problem commercially is we are as commercial endeavors reaching out and wanting people to come look at what we have. And so we do a lot of things that say, well, what people are most interested in is this thing. 
So we'll do something about this thing and they'll come look at us. Mm. But very odd, it's really hard to find those things that are actually related at all to why people would want to look at us. I have talked about there's a, a whole bait and switch kind of thing online where we're always trying to get people to come look at us. And so we try to attract them to our website for one thing, and then we hit them up with a sales pitch. You know, right. there's a good reason why states have outlawed bait and switch in automobile ads, you know, where they advertise one super low priced car and it's not even available, but the people are already at the dealer. And so, you know, they buy a car from them. So it ends up being somewhat effective, but it's so deceptive. It, it should be out there. I think it's tough. I think it's tough. I think it's tough. The other tough part of it is what role did you or your product play in that viral item? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you were telling me about the George Foreman grill. Yeah, it doesn't have, I mean, there's a lot of equivalents from advertising past that aren't related to social media. So I made half hour infomercials at one point in time. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually really fun to make. So I don't want anybody to give me any grief about that. And they're really potent and really good advertising. But so I was around the George Foreman grill when it came out in around 1999 or 98, whenever that was. And it just, you know, took off did huge numbers. Every retailer was thrilled because it drove retail sales to these you know, very high levels. But there's a problem. I don't know, Shaheen, do you know who made the George Foreman Grill? No. Well, no, see, no that's, this is the thing. Right. Actually, George Foreman Grill was made by a mainline appliance, small appliance manufacturing company, Salt and Maxim. So Salt and Maxim came out with that infomercial. Unfortunately, all the branding in the infomercial says George Foreman on it. In the long run, Salt and Maxim had to be sold for pennies on the dollar because uh, they were so dependent on Foreman Grill that when Foreman Grill sales leveled off and kind of came back to a neutral level, they couldn't survive. They didn't figure out a way to leverage that success into something more for the whole company. I mean, here they have this whole company that makes probably three or 400 different products hmm. and they bet everything on this one product and they're in trouble. And I think you know, with all the infomercials we made, we were very careful not to let that happen. We had to build a bigger sense, a bigger long-term value. Right. We were always looking at that. It could be done. It wasn't done with the Foreman infomercial. So here it was. Was it highly successful? Of course it was. They sold millions of those things. On the other hand, in the end, the infomercial itself put Salt and Maxim out of business because they didn't know how to manage it to a big thing. Same thing with these viral campaigns. You know, the Will It Blend, where they blended things like a blender, they're selling a blender, you know, Will It Blend an iPhone. And so you put an iPhone in the blender and everybody goes like, that's pretty funny. And it's the product and it's on target, all sorts of good message there. Year and a half later, what else do you do? They didn't build a long-term. And Volvo trucks, you were talking about Volvo trucks. And I mm -hmm. remember one, I think it was Jean-Claude Van Damme that's doing this split on two trucks gradually sort of diverging mm -hmm. from each other. And I don't know whether that really helped Jean-Claude Van Damme more than it did Volvo or vice versa. Did it work? Did it help <laughs> sell cars? Or was it just interesting? I haven't looked into the numbers, but I hear a lot of people say Volvo says it worked really, really well for him. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, at best what it is, is it's a way to remind people Volvo exists. And right. they, they do, they're kind of funky. Okay, great. So it does that. Yeah. The interesting thing is uh, Karen, oh, I don't have her full name. She works for Ehrenberg Bass Institute, has written a book about viral marketing. And in her book, she notes that most corporate viral things, and we're not talking consumer viral where somebody does something crazy and it passes around the world really quickly. The cranberry juice TikTok. 
video yeah, that mm -hmm. that kind of thing no no we're talking about i have a message i want to get out there or i want to get out there and get people to come to my website so i have a commercial reason for this most commercial viral requires an investment in seeding the viral campaign through blogs through influencers all kinds of ways for people to see it so you start realizing that most corporate stuff doesn't just take off on its own but it also tells me that it's just another form of advertising yes well, then in that case, you have to evaluate it in the portfolio of other ways to reach the market. And this is one way, and except that it may or may not work, <laughs> whereas if you do advertising. <laughs> I've, I've often said, my students like this one at least, that starting a viral campaign is like trying to start a wave at a football game. Right, right yes. You're, you're here at the football game, you're all excited, so you stand up, throw your arms in the air and go, woo, and everybody looks at you like you're insane. You know, and your friends are like, hey, would you sit back down? So then you talk to your friends and you get them in on the gag. And now five of you stand up and do the same thing. And everybody around you looks at you with like, God, would you stop this stuff? You know, now you keep working and eventually you pay your entire section to stand up at once. And it goes a section and a half and stops. And you're like, well, that was better, sort of. But we had to pay the section to stand up every now and then. It takes off, and my God, it's so much fun when it takes off, and there's a whole wave around the stadium, and it's really fun, and you could say you started. Well, that's what viral campaigns are like. You know, there's yeah. so many things that are thrown out there by people saying, I want to create a viral campaign. Well, you can't create virality. It has to be this magic mix. Uh, it's not going to take off around the stadium unless it's the right time, the crowd's at the right place, you know, everybody's happy. There's all sorts of things that are required. So it is kind of, will it blend? It's, will it stick? <laughs> will it stick? Well put. All right. So the other thing we talked about before was the four Ps. Let's go back to the four Ps of marketing. And the first P is product, but then price, place, and promotion, if I get the order right. Yeah. And of the three, place has always been the weakest to me because it doesn't really quite make sense to me. I sort of wonder whether you're talking channel, but at least that's my B2B bias into uh -huh. that discussion. When I came into marketing, uh, in a more general marketing education out of B2B, I thoroughly agree with you. Now that I've spent 30 years doing it, there's a really good reason for the place to exist. Um, mm -hmm. Because when you're doing consumer goods, you've got a far wider range of options and it's a strategic question. It's not a sales question. So what is the answer to the place? What, what do we mean when we say place and B2C consumer? Well, when we're working consumer, place, you know, think about the places you have to consider. You've got the place of the consumer home shopping online through the website. You've got a range then of options of place. So let's just suppose it's a food product. You know, you've got 7-Eleven, you know, convenience mm -hmm. stores. You've got grocery stores. You've got super stores. And you've got discount stores like a Winco or one of the discount marts. And then you've got Costco, which is the you know, large volume store. The question for your company is how do you play those? Where do you start? How do you grow through them? And how do you support the product in each? Because it's not so simple as, gee, you just throw your product in the store. I've got a, a friend, we've been friends for 20 years, 25 years almost, and she is high up in Pepsi in the region and they manage the stores. And so they're always there knowing where's the product, is the product full? You know, a lot of people, manufacturers have their own people that go in to make sure the shelves are full, check the displays. So in consumer goods, it's a very big deal. 
I worked one campaign where we came out with a new product and the marketer, the client said, okay, this is great. We're going to start away from Walmart. So wherever we put it in retail, we're going to start away from Walmart. Why would you do that? Walmart absolutely is your basement price. So if you mm -hmm. go into Walmart, you'll never price above what Walmart wants you to sell it for. Mm -hmm. So you're stuck. You've given up you know, millions of dollars of margin if you start in Walmart. Four weeks later, he calls me up furious because his sales guys had come back and just sold into Walmart. And they'd sold it in at a really horrible price. And, you know, instead of being a, a, you know, a $19.99 product at Target, they were going to have to sell it for $9.99 at Walmart. Wow. The salesmen are like, yeah, but I got an order for millions of units. Right. But strategically, you have to look at places. Okay, how am I going to approach this? So it is tough. Yeah, maybe that's my problem with it is that it's a combination of literally location, place, yeah. mm -hmm. but also channel, at least in the b2b vernacular where yeah. the place mm -hmm. really is either the customer's offices or you know increasingly online for sure or some trade show or something where right. you know you're probably not going to transact but you probably will accelerate well in that growing set of sales people who operate between phone and online you know i've got right. a, you know a good friend who does that for intel now and he's very good at it and those right. Kind of yeah, the inside sales is a is a is a big deal. So, how about the other three product price? I see those as kind of a product management type of activity. Yeah, product I, facing I think anyway, so. and then promotion is like customer facing. Yeah, yeah, that's that really is it. Is it's kind of I look at remember the three roles of marketing is one role is to understand grok everything that's going on in the market grok what your customers care about, understand this stuff in really core ways. And then the second role is to bring that back inside to influence and understand what's going on. And that's where product and price are. Is there in that? What marketing knowledge, how does that affect the product we need to build, what we have, how we manufacture it and get it out there and the price of it and you know, all these things. And then there's the two things that marketing does, which is the third role is marketing then does place for sales a lot of times and promotion, advertising, communications, you know, all those things. So yeah, these are the two that kind of focus on influence what's going on inside the company, our product and price. So especially with the advent of digital, the distance between the customer facing part of the equation and the products facing part of the equation is increasing. And in the meantime, marketing's job is to reduce that distance. And that makes it a very difficult assignment because now it is very difficult for advertising, PR, demand gen, Marcom teams to really understand the competitive advantage and the value of the product. And likewise, it is very difficult for product managers to stay up to date with the latest fads and currents in the market and the business challenges and what the customer's realities are. And the two often don't mingle enough. It, some of it depends on the market you're in. So in consumer goods, if we're selling hand tools, screwdrivers, hammers, you know, sockets, it's actually not quite as hard to pull that off, right? You mm -hmm. can pull that off where you can know a lot about screwdrivers and how they're made and also know a lot about how you advertise them. And so I think in consumer goods, there is a tendency where those are closer, that digital kind of forcing apart 
hasn't happened as much. But things like, you know, the supercomputers we used to sell, so demanding technically that it's very difficult to have somebody who can thoroughly understand, you know, a supercomputer well enough to be the product marketer and also be really great with all the communication around it. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of my bias is now you add artificial intelligence and now you add all these new trends with metaverse and web three and this, that, and the other, that makes it extremely difficult. So what I'm observing, at least in the domain I have visibility to, is the rise of product marketing as a discipline that can straddle the two and be a buffer that can help flow the information in both directions, get market info and pass it on to engineering and product management and get product info and pass it on to PR advertising demand gen such that the material is hitting the mark. It's got the nuance included in it. I think I hadn't thought about this till you just said that, but I have for a few decades been critical of how tech embraced brand marketers because there's different flavors of brand marketers and consumer goods. You know, mm-hmm. you've got my friends at Hamilton Beach or at you know Newell Rubbermaid who are all product people or at Lowe's. They're product people, which means they have a physical product they have to sell with. Then you've got the people from Kraft Foods or Johnson & Johnson who deal with consumable fuzzy products, where if you take the goods, put it in a different bottle, same product, put it in a different bottle with a different endorsement behind it, you can sell it for four times as much. When tech went out to get brand marketers, they decided they needed the best brand marketers, and that came from Johnson & Johnson. So what they got were people who never had had to deal with the truth of a real product, which is you can say whatever you want about white cream in a bottle, but when it is a computer and it will only do certain things, you can't do that. You know, you can't magically remix it to be something else and sell it for four times as much. And I'm wondering a little bit if the gap you're seeing is that gap that we have on the brand and communication side, these people who've never had to really respect product that communication is what defined the product's value. Whereas people in traditional hard goods, you know, like screwdrivers and hammers, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sorry, it's a hammer. I know when, mm-hmm. you know, if you mm-hmm. sell me on something and I get it and I hold it in my hand and go, that was a punch, that was a whole load of BS. You can't do that. So they have a certain respect for product that's not there in the craft foods. You know, we talked about it a little bit last time for B2C, you as a marketer are a potential customer. You know, you may not like that brand of peanut butter, but you buy peanut butter. So you are, in fact, a potential customer. Or you may not like peanut butter at all, but you can imagine what you would go through if you did buy it. Whereas if you're talking about a, you know, $30 million supercomputer, you're definitely not a customer. And most individuals aren't, in fact. It's more like a committee and all that. So so the whole thing is. So that's one thing that is different. And the other part, as you mentioned, is the sheer complexity of the product in a way that is relevant to the sales cycle. Like I'm sure there is lots of complexity in peanut butter and you may even have had a supercomputer to simulate how the whole thing flows in manufacturing or something, mm-hmm. but you may or may not really have to expose that to the customer as a way of differentiation. So perhaps it is just simpler. And when you are talking about a really complex product, whether it's B2C or B2B, maybe now it becomes more difficult to reflect the nuances and advantages of the product by someone who may not really be adept at the deeper sides of the technology of it. 
I get more worried in consumer goods, actually, that we have an active dismissal in consumer goods sometimes of the product's importance. There was a guy in advertising, well-respected account planning, early account planning guy out of the UK. So I want to try to pick up and read his book. And I don't know, a few chapters into the book, he starts talking about toilet paper. And mm. it was a paper he'd written in the 1960s. And he said, well, you know, people don't care about how the toilet, what the toilet paper is made of. There's no advantage in the product. So everything has to be out of the creative. So the creative is our only way to get an advantage. Now, I traveled in the UK in 1978. And what you found was, boy, there were a lot of variations of toilet paper. And some of them were horrific. You know? <laughs> That's right. And if, if you look back over the intervening decades... There's a lot we care about in toilet paper. And I know that's weird. I know I'm talking a bit. What can I say? Right? It matters. It's very and, true. <laughs> you know, it does matter. And yet there is a kind of a, a, a consumer goods approach sometime of product just isn't that important. So we'll ignore product. And our advertising is what, what will make it great. Yeah. One of the most brilliant things that's been done in my lifetime in advertising around this was the Mini Cooper campaign when the Mini Cooper came out. Mm -hmm. Sorry, big topic shift here. But when yeah. the Mini Cooper came out, this really swanky, cool ad agency out of Florida did the advertising for it. Now, when you talk to their people, they would say, oh, well, you know what we did was this viral thing. It was so good. No, no. The reason the Mini Cooper sold was they made, they had the wisdom to rely on the product. It mm. sold because they put out big billboards with a picture of the Mini Cooper. And people all over the world went, oh, my God, that is cool, and went off to figure it out, right? So they actually relied on the product to do that selling, which was a tremendous wisdom, probably made the agency life a little hard because all these people wanted to have their creative be the thing that made the difference. You didn't right. need it. The product was so damn good, they could get away with saying, look at our product. And people would stream into showrooms and uh, real courage on part of the of both uh, BMW and uh, the agency. Yeah, I, I might add that the fact that BMW was now the owner was a non-trivial difference, too. That, oh, OK, that means that I can feel good about the mechanics of it, etc. Yeah. Yeah. You mean that it wasn't the old Mini Cooper? Yeah. <laughs> back, then, back in when I was in England in the late 70s, yeah, I hitchhiked a few times in those. They were a little uh, tight. So <laughs> that's right. Or, uh, but, Mr. But I think it, it, it does actually, for me, we've tapped into one of the things because at core, I'm a product guy. I love products. And in the advertising work we did, there was nothing more fun than trying to crack the code of why is somebody going to care about this product? What is it right, they care about? Right, right. And, you know, for all the stuff we hear about other things, what we forget is people don't buy brands. They buy products. Those products have a brand. And the brand's important in the sales cycle, but they're buying the product. I don't go out to buy an Apple. I go out to buy a new phone. And that right. phone, I'll make a choice, whether it's by Apple or Samsung. And then, you know, those brands will influence me. But I've seen things where unbranded products can demand two to three times higher price. I mean, 200 to 300% higher price than a branded product because of what they do for people. So brand is a value, but I look at it as kind of a 20% price increase. Mm. That's not, the, it's lovely. Don't walk away That's from lovely. it. It's right. critical, 
critical. But let's not forget that it's the product that people buy. It's the product that builds brand associations, right? Until you have that product in your sin. Even if you do buy a brand, if the product doesn't deliver on the promise of the brand, that dilutes the brand and you're not going to buy the brand again. It is at the end relying on product and all things being equal as a marketer, you're way better off understanding the product as deeply as possible than not. It will never be a bad thing and it can potentially be a really, really good thing by making your marketing just a lot more effective. And actually consumers or customers really, I mean, in B2C or B2B have a real ear for whether or not the people doing the marketing get it and understand the product. In fact, as you know, supercomputing companies for a while were sort of afraid of calling their marketing VP, VP of marketing. They would have a <laughs> uh -huh. different name for it because customers were liable to react negatively to the title. And there was a perceived mistaken perception that if right. you had a marketing label, you probably didn't understand the product. And therefore, why are you talking to me? It goes with the thing I always advised when I went into sales for Floating Point, which was always have a tie, keep a tie around that has soup on it because you're <laughs> selling with engineers, right? We're talking to scientists and engineers. And if you come in dressed in Gucci or in, you know, whatever the latest slick looking stuff is, they don't trust you. But if you come in a little rumpled, it's okay. You know, they like that. That bit means you're credible. As long as you don't come in rumpled, but clearly drive up in your Lamborghini. Actually, that's a really good topic we might want to talk about at some point, And that is looking like your customers. Yes. Because it is very true that if now, mm -hmm. you know, I'm coming from the IT background, that if you're selling workstations versus if you're selling big mainframe computers, those big mainframes, as you know, were called big iron and still are called big iron. But if you're selling big iron, you know, there was a whole look and feel and behavior and customer values that you had to embody. And those customer values, very important. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Okay. Maybe this is a good time to pause and uh, thank you. Thank you, Shaheen. That was quite fun. I could talk about product forever. Okay. And to all of our listeners, thank you for staying with us. Thank you for keeping us going. And please share, like, and other things that marketing folks do. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.